Hello, Shiver Seekers. Are you ready to follow us into the unknown? I'm Cynthia. And I'm Stephanie. And you have found the Dark Oak. In today's episode, we will delve into Hollywood's most infamous murder. We will cover the life and death of Elizabeth Short, better known as the Black Dahlia. Welcome to the Dark Oak, the mystery podcast with purpose. Each month through the Branch of Hope Fund, we give a portion of earnings from our Patreon and sponsors to a nonprofit organization of your choosing. To find out how you can be a part of the movement, head over to thedarkoak.com or stay with us until the end of the episode and we will give you all the details. I debated a little bit about covering today's case because it's been pretty sensationalized. I mean, who hasn't heard of the Black Dahlia? True. Even if you don't actually know the story, you've heard of the Black Dahlia. Absolutely. It's been covered in every podcast. There are several movies about it. None of them would be considered a true story, but they're all kind of based on the Black Dahlia. Elizabeth Short has turned into this thing that he wasn't. In the end, though, I figured the story was just about her. And I really wanted to share more of her life and give you a more factual representation of who she was and her unfortunate ending and then the investigation that happened after her death. You're right, Stephanie. I'm really excited because I know in true Stephanie fashion, you're going to give us information we've never heard before. And you're right. She is almost like a character. Yeah. The Black Dahlia. Yeah. And I'm excited to learn more about her as a person. My goal is to really cut through the inflated tabloid version and give you the facts as I could find them. It's even hard in books, though, because several of the books, which I'll go into later, they're not even factual. Really? Yeah. And really trying to piece it together. I tried to look for as many newspaper articles, but again, that wasn't always factual. I went back and looked at the autopsy reports. The LAPD has released a good number of reports, but it's not the whole set. I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it my best shot here. Okay. I'm excited. I'm going to try to do Elizabeth proud. Good. I'm sure you will. Now, Elizabeth Short was born on July 29th, 1942 in the Hyde Park section of Boston, Massachusetts, which basically means the southern part of Boston. Hyde Park is kind of known as its own thing, but essentially that means Boston. Okay. Where my husband's from. Oh. Yeah. Does he know where Hyde Park is? Oh, I'm sure he does. Do you ever go and visit? We have. Yeah. Okay. I don't don't know that much about Boston. Hyde Park, neither do I, other than it's really fun and people lose the khakis all the time. I... (laughs) He taught me how to say car keys. You just say khakis, like the pants, khakis. Okay. And that makes a lot more sense to me. I literally was picturing people's pants flying off. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, is that something we covered? We covered in the Bell Witch episode. Where, where are my khakis? <laughs> my khakis. Okay. That's, yeah. pr- that's pretty good. Now, yeah. he doesn't speak with that much of an accent. Uh, he does when he gets up there with his friends. It comes okay. back real fast. If he's had a couple of beers, it'll okay. start to come out. <laughs> But no, he he's mostly lost it, but it does make okay. little appearances. A little appearances. Time time. <laughs> now, Elizabeth was born to Cleo and Phoebe Short, and she was the third of their five daughters. Wow, five daughters. Five daughters. Okay. I know. Lots of estrogen <laughs> in that house. Yeah, I can imagine. Whoa. When Elizabeth was three, her family relocated briefly to Portland, Maine, before moving again and settling in Medford, Massachusetts, which is really where they set up roots. 
Her mom remained a stay-at-home mom, and her father was beginning to shape a successful career building miniature golf courses. But unfortunately, the stock market crash of 1929 decimated all of their income and savings. Oh, that's terrible. This was such a hard time in our nation's history, and the shorts really took it on the chin. Shortly thereafter, Elizabeth's father's car was found abandoned on the Charleston Bridge. Now, everyone assumed because of the family circumstances that he had jumped to his death, which was not uncommon. Suicides were absolutely on the rise during this time just because of the crash. Sure. And Elizabeth's mother, again, assuming her husband to be dead, had no other options and went to work as a bookkeeper to try to care for these five girls. And it's reasonable to say the family was absolutely struggling Elizabeth also suffered from some health issues. She was diagnosed with severe asthma and she was constantly plagued by pneumonia. Somehow, though, her mom, Phoebe, pulled it together. And when Elizabeth was 15, she paid for lung surgery for Elizabeth to correct some of her breathing issues and provide her with a better quality of life. Oh, wow. Now, this changed her life in a big way, too, because doctors suggested that Elizabeth should spend winters in a more temperate climate to alleviate the strain on her lungs. And as a result, Elizabeth spent the next three summers in Miami, Florida. Quite the difference between. (laughs) Yes, indeed. You know, I I think her mom, Phoebe, really tried to do the best for her, but it was really a strain for Elizabeth. She was staying with family down in Miami, but she didn't have a a ton of supervision and she didn't have a ton of stability. If you think about it, she's in Medford, Massachusetts, a good time out of the year. Then she's in Miami. And ultimately, it led to her dropping out of high school during her sophomore year. I can imagine this was just really difficult time for her to be a teenager. When you're a teenager, everything is so like magnified already. All of life's hardships seem to be magnified. So sure, having to pick up and move to the other side of the country. Yeah, yeah, that's hard. And again, Phoebe, I think, is doing her best, but she's trying to care for all five girls. Well, being a single mom, I mean, yeah, that's really hard too. Tough, tough. Listen to this part, Cynthia. In late 1942, Phoebe, Elizabeth's mom, received a letter from her presumed dead husband, Cleo. What? (laughs) It turned out he had not jumped, but had simply run away to start a new life in California. Oh, how nice for him. Uh Uh-huh. After we just spent the last five minutes talking about how this family is struggling, oh, he just pops back up. I'm alive. I was here the whole time. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. If I was Phoebe, I would have some words. I would make him wish he jumped off that bridge. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Now, in this letter, he apologized for his actions and expressed his interest in forming a relationship with his children. Okay. Now, I wasn't able to find Phoebe's reaction to it, but her girls, I mean, you want a relationship with your dad, right? Absolutely. And so when Elizabeth turned 18... She just picked up and moved to Vallejo, California to live with her dad that she hadn't seen since she was the age of six. I feel bad for Phoebe because even though obviously you want your kids to have a relationship with their father, man, that's got to sting. You've done all the work for all these years and then see a mom, going to go hang out with dad. That's exactly right. And he hasn't really had a very good track record of being a very good role model. Sure. Right. right? Like making good life choices. So... I mean, but what could she do? Elizabeth had turned 18. So Elizabeth was determined to make this relationship work with her father, to have the father that she had never had in her life. Unfortunately, though, 
her efforts were in vain and she and her father immediately started fighting. And after only a few months, Elizabeth moved out Mm. into California where she knew no one. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Now she didn't have a ton of options at this point. Sure. Because again, doesn't know anybody. She's only been there a few months. She doesn't have a steady stream of income. So she moved in with a U.S. Army Air Force sergeant that she had casually been dating. And she took a job at the base exchange at Camp Cook in Lompoc. Unfortunately, this ended pretty quickly as well because Elizabeth found herself in a domestic abuse situation. Oh, no. Yeah. Turned out he had kind of wined her and dined her in the beginning and then turned out to just be a jerk. Mm, Okay. So here she is again. So she left Lompoc in mid-1943 and moved an hour south to Santa Barbara where, unfortunately, she was arrested on September 23rd for drinking at a local bar while underage. Okay. And I don't know. Can you blame her? <laughs> I mean, she's having a tough go of it. Well, she's doing everything else like a grown-up. Like, you know. She's expected to live like a grown-up. Right. That's exactly right. Not that I'm justifying underage drinking, but still. No. But, you know, she's essentially on her own, right. trying to make her own way. She's 18. Now, again, we don't condone underage drinking, but, I mean, what can what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Authorities sent her back to Massachusetts. However, she never actually made it there and instead detoured back to Florida. Okay. Which I would do the same. (laughs) I'm not going back to Massachusetts. (laughs) See, and I'd pick Massachusetts any day. First time my husband took me up there, I was like, if our family wasn't in Florida, we'd be moving up here. You love the cold weather. I loved it. You would, have take, you would have taken your khakis. I would have taken my khakis. I would have adopted the accent, the whole thing. <laughs> now, she occasionally visited her family in Boston, but she never really returned there with any kind of permanence. And she really just kind of moved all over the United States, mostly between Florida and California. And when she was in Florida, when she wound up moving back after this arrest, she met Major Matthew Gordon, who was a decorated Army Air Force officer of the 2nd Air Commando Group. He was training for deployment to the Southeast Asian Theater of World War II. So a pretty active zone. And while on deployment, Gordon was involved in a plane crash in India. And while recovering, he wrote a letter to Elizabeth asking her to marry him. Oh, that's so romantic. So this absolutely could have been the point in the story where Elizabeth's life really takes a turn for the better. Unfortunately, soon after Elizabeth accepted, Gordon tragically died in a second plane crash in August of 1945. Oh, wow. Yeah. My heart just keeps breaking for her. She can't catch a break. So much grief and tragedy. Absolutely. And she's only 18? Yes. I mean, 19 at this point. But yeah, young. Oh. Young, a baby. Yeah. Yeah. After Gordon's death, Elizabeth continued to go down the spiral and she began frequenting more bars. She would stay in public types of of apartments where you could basically rent a bunk bed for the night. Not a lot of stability again. On at least one occasion, Elizabeth was short the money to pay for the bunk bed for the night and she snuck out the fire escape with her suitcase. So she's effectively homeless. Right. There are rumors that she turned to prostitution this is in the books and things. I've heard this. Yeah. However, there was no evidence of that. Okay. Now, she was down on her luck. There is some evidence that she would 
lead men on a bit in order to get a meal, get some lodging, those kinds of things. But not in a prostitution sense. Right. Just in like, hey, if you want to take me out for dinner, that would be really great. Okay. Which I never did that, but I know of lots of women who have. Yeah. I I mean, I think you got to do what you got to do in some of these situations. Yeah. Even if that was prostitution, that doesn't make her a terrible person. But there isn't any evidence that that was what she was involved in. Okay. As a side note, this fact that she led men on, but that didn't actually sleep with them. So it's like, you know, she just can't win here. So the rumor was, you know, she was either a prostitute or the men paid her, but because they didn't actively pay her and she, quote, led them on, but never actually slept with them, there was this additional rumor that she was a homosexual. Okay. And that the flirting, but not following through with it, somehow meant that she wasn't into men, which is a whole other rumor. Which means she's obviously gay. (laughs) Clearly. Clearly. in the 40s would have been... Oh, it'd been very taboo. Yes. For sure. Yes. Very taboo. And, but I just, I hate that these rumors are started about her, but the fact that she was a lesbian. And again, by the time anybody knew anything about her, she had already been killed. Okay. And so this is after the fact. This there. is after she the She was fact. either a prostitute or a lesbian who or liked a to lesbian. lead men on. That, exactly. Or, yeah. So just. Which I, I None hate. of which was true. I hate for her. And again, if she was one of those things, okay, but. That's not fair to put that on her after the fact when she doesn't even have any way to speak for herself. Almost a year later, Elizabeth would move to Los Angeles where she had a few friends and she found work as a waitress. Her last months were tumultuous, however, and in four and a half months, she lived in nine locations, moving eight times. Oh my gosh, that's moving even just like once a year is off. I guess she didn't have much. So, you know, she wasn't like, running a u-haul but still (laughs) no and i mean again this idea of no stability right that's especially not to not to bring in like sexism or anything like that or roles based on gender but for women it's just been proven that we require stability yeah so she must have felt very unsafe i know i would unsafe and just alone just a bit alone exactly her final residence was a cramped room in a private home located behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard. She shared it with eight other women. Wow. Despite this, she was always known as an impeccable dresser who was very particular about her clothes and fashion and always had a full face of makeup. Okay, you go, girl. Exactly. She made it work. (laughs) She was mentioned by some as having aspirations of becoming an actress, and she certainly did look the part. I mean, she had this gorgeous dyed jet black hair, beautiful blue eyes. She had the perfect skin and figure, but there was no evidence that she had made any advancements toward her acting career at this point. But again, the media really made Elizabeth into something she was not again. Okay. And she's commonly referred to as a starlet or a budding actress, but you know, she may have wanted to be an actress, but There's no indication that she had gone to any acting school or had auditioned for any plays or shows or movies or anything like that. So she wasn't actively pursuing it. Correct. Yeah, that's absolutely not what I've heard about her. Yeah. I'm learning so much. So much of what I've so I've already heard just about her. three three myths. Yeah, and we're only you know 15 minutes into this episode. Yeah, I thought she was a a 
wannabe movie star who was prostituting and <laughs> yeah okay. and none of that is true wow. she's simply a girl just trying to make a go at it wow yeah now i am going to place trigger warnings basically from here until the end of the episode um i'm not sure if everyone listening is familiar with her murder but it is pretty graphic it's pretty intense i go into some descriptions of anatomy I will say the most graphic stuff is within the next 10 minutes or so. And then we go into some theories um, about the killer. But just you've been warned. (laughs) In general, on our podcast, we don't go into a lot of gruesome, gory stuff because I don't feel like it adds very much. But to her, it's impossible to tell her case without going into some of it. Sure, yeah. On the morning of January 15th, 1947, Betty Bersinger a woman pushing her two-year-old and a stroller saw what she thought was a mannequin in a vacant lot of her budding neighborhood in Lehmant Park. It was not a mannequin. It's never a mannequin. (laughs) Can I just say it's never a mannequin? (laughs) Oh, God. Sadly, it was the body of Elizabeth Short. Her body had been bisected at the waist and drained of all blood, making her pallid white. Her face had been mutilated, being cut from the corners of each of her lips up to her ears, giving her a gruesome smile. Her body, especially her breasts and thighs, were missing chunks of flesh, and her body was posed in a truly horrific way. The two halves of her body were separated by about a foot, and they were slightly askew. So the top part of her body was, again, about a foot apart from the bottom half. However, the top half was moved a little to the left. Mm -hmm. Her hands were placed level with her head with her arms bent at a 90-degree angle. Her legs were spread apart. Her intestines were neatly tucked under her buttocks. Like taken out of her and Taken out and put under her. Somebody's so sick. Evil. Like, ugh. Evil. And again... Because she'd been completely drained of blood, her skin was just this ghostly white. Like, this is so beyond, I mean, to murder a woman is, you know, awful. And any one of these things, to cut somebody's face, like, any one of these things is really bad. But to, like, do, you're going to cut somebody in half and remove their intestines and drain their blood and disfigure their face, like, and then pose them. Yeah, very intentional acts. None of this happened by accident. No. And it must have taken so much time. And back in the 40s, like, this would have been probably even more difficult to do. So bizarre. No other word except evil. That's the only thing that kept coming to mind as I was researching this case. Just evil. Mm. An autopsy revealed there were ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck. And there was a wide laceration measuring about four inches from her belly button to just above her pelvic bone. So Ooh. an additional cut below oh. below where she had been bisected, going up and down. There was bruising to her face and skull consistent with being beaten. Hmm. Her body had been cut in half by a technique that had been taught in the 1930s called hemicorporectomy. In a hemicorrectomy, okay, I've said it twice now correctly, so I feel like I need an applause here. The body is amputated below the waist, transecting the lumbar spine, and it removes the legs, the genitalia, both internal and external, the urinary system, the pelvic bones, the anus, and the rectum, bisecting the body. 
was just an idea at this point. And it was taught as a way to think about keeping injured soldiers alive because weapons of war had continued to evolve and there were such severe injuries. What organs do we need to keep someone alive? Okay. Essentially. Okay. So as a life-saving measure, how much? Exactly. How far can we go? How far can we go? That's exactly right. So if someone loses their lower half, can we still keep them alive? Okay. Does it still make sense? And Mm -hmm. how would we do it? Mm. But no one had actually performed this. Sure. It was just a theoretical idea. Okay. The first hemicorporectomy wasn't even performed until 1951. So years after Elizabeth was found. And interestingly, it is a procedure now. And it's again, it's a last resort procedure. Yes, for injuries, but it's also been used in cases of bone disease, tumors around the pelvis. Hmm. So you're you have to lose your pelvis, but what can we save? Wow. And what kind of quality of life would you have? By 2009, which is the last report I was able to find, there are 66 cases of this being used in mes- medical literature. Now, if this is interesting to you, like it was to me, I mean, it's morbid, right? It's but- a little anxiety inducing <laughs> to me, to be honest. And in the case of Elizabeth, it's absolutely terrible. Uh-huh. However, as a life-saving procedure, it's interesting It is amazing. It's really amazing. So if you are interested, I want you to go and look up the case of Lauren Scowers. In 2019, at the age of 19, he underwent a hemicorporectomy after a forklift accident. And he and his wife, Sabia, now have their own YouTube channel where they document their life and Lauren's progress and how he functions. Oh, wow. Essentially half a body. And it's really incredible. It's absolutely incredible. He has such a zest for life and she's so supportive and incredible. So it really does show the positive side of this. I essentially had to throw this in here because Elizabeth case is so terrible. I had to have some kind of silver lining <laughs> to yeah. some of this. But anyway, go look up Lauren Scours. I was I I'm kind of obsessed. But again, this in 1947, this was not something that should have been performed. Do they believe that it was someone who was possibly in the medical field? It had to be. Okay. And somebody with basically skill, precision, and some kind of training. Okay. Is the idea. Because it was done well enough. It was done well enough. Yeah, the lower half of Elizabeth's body was removed by transecting her lumbar spine between the second and third lumbar vertebrae, which is very specific. And then her intestines were severed at a part called the duodenum which is the highest and first section of the small intestines. So in gastrointestinal anatomy, your stomach empties into the small intestine, which then empties in the large intestine and then out the body. Elizabeth's intestines were severed at the connection of the stomach to the small intestine. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean, in exact This is spot. not haphazard at all. No. And if there's any silver lining to Elizabeth's end, it's that there were little signs of bruising along the incision line suggesting she was deceased when she was dissected. Well, thank God for that. Thank God for that. However, the cause of death is equally as horrifying. It was from hemorrhaging from the lacerations to her face and the shock from the blows to her head. So the smile that was cut into her face is what killed her. She was alive. Yeah. I just always kind of assumed 
that happened after she died. Oh, my gosh. That's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. Oh, my gosh. It's <sighs> it's horrible. It's horrible, and I hate it. I hate it for her. I hate it so much. It was theorized that she may have been raped. However, her body tested negative for the presence of semen, which isn't always confirmed. Well, that- and there's no blood in her body either. We know that was there. So, right. And the body had been thoroughly cleaned with gasoline, which would remove any fingerprints and I assume any other kind of biological material. This is just getting worse. It gets worse. (laughs) It's just so awful. Exactly. Near the body, detectives located a heel print on the ground amid the tire tracks and a cement sack containing watery blood. Are you familiar with like the cement sacks? No. Like, okay. So they're basically like, I think they look like white ikea bags i don't know if you ever shop okay. the ikea store so it's, it's like that like plastic woven but it would hold mesh. cement normal. so it would hold okay. cement and it holds kind of wet goods like chicken and stuff. feed bag chicken feed bag okay. that's exactly right so it's kind of disposable but it's kind of water resistant okay and the idea was that this the body would have been moved in the bag in the cement so bag. it's a large bag it's a large bag yes and outside of that the crime scene had very few clues Because of the lack of blood at the crime scene, detectives did conclude that the body was mutilated at a different location and then dumped in Lehmann Park, which was mostly undeveloped at this time. It's one of those, it's a big tract. It's hard to think about anywhere in LA being undeveloped (laughs) in this current day and age. But it was a tract of land that was set for development. There were a few houses that had already been built. Mm -hmm. And if you look at any crime scene photos, you'll notice there's a street, there's a sidewalk. But the lot she was found at was an empty lot that was getting prepared for a home to be built on. Okay. So that there's a home on it now. I knew that because I I knew it is so crazy because (laughs) I think people like to stop by and like take photos and stuff, which I think is so morbid. But also I think about the people who live in that home. Exactly. How weird that must be. How weird that must be. Yeah. I I hope I never get to experience that. Mm. Now, it's my opinion that Elizabeth had, up to her death, a less than ideal life. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. She was young, still trying to find her footing. She suffered through health issues, abuse, abandonment, lack of stability that we talked about, and her end came in a really horrendous way. But what came after her death is genuinely haunting. After she was identified through fingerprints, which they had on file because of her underage drinking arrest. Oh, okay. So there's a silver lining there. It it truly was. Without that arrest, she may not have been identified for years, but they were able to identify her very quickly. Unfortunately, this information got in the wrong hands and reporters from the Los Angeles Reporter immediately called Elizabeth's mother, Phoebe, in Boston. They told her that her daughter had won a beauty contest and they wanted to get more information about Elizabeth in order to write an article about her. You're kidding me. And her mother doesn't even know yet that she's passed. No. No. Oh, my gosh. Now, under this ruse, Phoebe was an open book and answered many questions, like any proud mother would. After prying... And getting some very personal information out of Phoebe, reporters then told her, oops, actually, your daughter is dead. I I have no words right now. I have no words. It's... I have no words for how awful that is. You have to be an animal to do that. An animal. And then 
To follow up with that, in another unbelievably callous move, they offered to pay for Phoebe's airfare and accommodations if she traveled to Los Angeles to help with the police investigation. However, it was another ploy that they never planned to follow through on because they just wanted her in their sights to protect their story and their headline. So essentially, they wanted to keep her away from investigators and other reporters. I, my heart just goes out to, to this poor mother. I mean, I, I just don't even know what to say. Exactly. This is as bad as the murder. Yes. That's what I said. I mean, it's really haunting. I feel like Elizabeth's life, I mean, not that she wasn't fulfilled and a, a good person, but, you know, I just couldn't get a break. Right. And then this horrendous murder. And then her family just being tortured after the fact. Rumors made up about Elizabeth, her family treated extremely unfairly. It's really, this is a tough case. This is hard, yeah. Yeah. Now, the Los Angeles Examiner was also theorized to be responsible for Elizabeth's new nickname, the Black Dahlia. While no one knows for sure where the name was first published, the moniker most likely came from a popular 1946 movie set in Hollywood called The Blue Dahlia. The plot involves the suspicion of a man murdering his wife. Because of Elizabeth's penchant for black clothing and dyeing her hair black, the name Black Dahlia came to light. But the examiner took it a step further and described the tailored black suit Elizabeth had last been seen in as a, quote, tight skirt and sheer blouse. Wasn't it just like the normal style of the time? It's a normal suit. Like a pretty black suit that you would have worn? That's then? right. That's right. And but I mean, anything yes, we can do to scandalize this further. That's right. That's right. They went on to describe her as a, quote, adventurous who prowled Hollywood Boulevard. Just the word choices. Right. Prowling yes. Hollywood. Prowling. Yes. Boulevard definitely brings up visuals that don't seem to be accurate. That don't seem to be accurate. Additional newspaper reports, such as one published in the Los Angeles Time on July 17th, deemed the murder a, quote, sex fiend slaying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Quality. <laughs> some quality reporting We gotta here. sell some newspapers. We gotta okay. sell some newspapers. Exactly. Police began the task of piecing together Elizabeth's final days. And I will tell you, based on the research I have done, no one agrees as to her whereabouts the week before her body was found. That's interesting. Yeah. Here is what we know. On January 9th, 1947, Elizabeth returned to her home in Los Angeles after a brief trip to San Diego with Robert Manley, a 25-year-old married salesman she had been dating. Manley stated that he dropped Short off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles and that Short was to meet her sister, who was visiting from Boston that afternoon. By some accounts, staff at the Biltmore recalled having seen Elizabeth using the lobby phone shortly after she was allegedly seen by patrons of the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge, which was down the street from the Biltmore. Now, what happened between January 9th, when she was last seen, and January 15th, when her body was found, is a complete mystery. According to the police investigation, this is called her missing week. Is it possible that that's when she was abducted on the 9th and dumped around the, the 15th? Well, and this started additional speculation, not necessarily from police, but just people trying to sensationalize her murder, mm -hmm. that she had been kidnapped this entire week, she was tortured this entire week, and made it a bigger deal. Now, I'm not sure how long it takes to bisect a body, mm -hmm. but I'm 
imagining that did take some time. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had not been dead for a, a week. Okay. Okay. Um, so her body was not in that level of decomposition, but they have not been able to positively identify where she was for that week. So potentially she could have been held, held alive. She could have. Yeah. And many eyewitnesses have come forward saying they saw Elizabeth up to the day of her murder, but police have concluded these were all false identifications mm. and no one that actually knew her personally has come forward to say they saw her. Okay. These are all people saying they saw her across the way. They saw a woman in a suitcase. And I think investigators really wanted to believe some of these because you want to believe that she wasn't being held against her will for an entire week. And that's a horrendous thought. But no one can say where Elizabeth was. I mean, it kind of seems like she may have been held against her will, which you are completely right that that is so terrifying because this is obviously a monster what's he doing with her what's he doing with her now this case is also clouded a little bit again another disservice to elizabeth because the lapd was under investigation at this time for performing shoddy detective work and many believe the reason that none of these eyewitness accounts were proven to be true is because the police didn't follow up on them as they should have. Oh, okay. So the police are saying none of them worked out. Others are saying, did they really mm. follow up on all of them? We'll never know. We we will probably never know. Mm. That's the truth. Considering they didn't know where she was for the week, the last person to have seen her that knew her was her this man she was dating, Robert Manley. He became the first true suspect in this case, but after two polygraph tests and a sworn alibi, he was set free. Okay. They thought he had nothing to do with it. Then on January 21st, 1947, six days after Elizabeth's body was found, a person claiming to be her killer placed a phone call to the office of James Richardson, the editor of The Examiner. Remember this one that's printing all these salacious headlines about Elizabeth? The person who wrote the note congratulated Richardson on the newspaper's coverage of the case and stated he planned on eventually turning himself in, but not before allowing police to pursue him further. Additionally, the caller told Richardson to, quote, expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail. Oh, that's interesting. And creepy. (laughs) And very creepy, yes. Now, this call was so unusual that it was taken as a hoax. I mean, what are the chances that he's going to call this reporter? Which would probably be my first thought as well. Like, I'm not going to call the police. I'm not going to call. I'm going to call the reporter. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, it is the reporter that's printing all of these. It's keeping the killer in the spotlight, though. Well, and it wouldn't be the first time that a murderer has reached out to the media. So yeah, I guess it's not that unusual. Now, three days later, a suspicious manila envelope addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers was discovered by a keen postal worker and quickly handed over to police. Mm. On the outside of the package, individual words had been cut and pasted from newspaper clippings. I mean, this is the movie part. Uh, yeah. Right? It's so sensational. But the clippings read, Here is Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow. 
the envelope contained Elizabeth's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names written on pieces of paper, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen embossed on the cover. Okay, so it's probably the murderer. It's probably genuine. Okay. Exactly. The package had also been cleaned with gasoline. Oh. Which was similar to Elizabeth's body. So another confirmation that it was sent by the killer. Mm-hmm. So at this point, it's they think with relative certainty, the caller had sent the letter to Richardson at the examiner and had sent this package. Yeah, that sounds valid. However, even after the gasoline cleaning, there were several partial fingerprints that were able to be lifted from the envelope. Oh. They were sent to the FBI for testing. However, the police reported that the prints were compromised in transit and thus could not be properly analyzed. Oh, we can't even like, we can't even handle stuff like this with care. It's really frustrating. (sighs) And so people are like, are you kidding? (laughs) Maybe it was just a true accident. But I mean, this guy could have been served you on a silver platter and somehow it was just bumbled. We're talking about a murderer here, like a murderer. Like, wouldn't you be extra careful? Well, and because of this, it's a bit disputed about whether they intentionally bumbled it oh. or inadvertently bumbled it because maybe they were getting paid off. Again, they're under investigation right now. Right. They're they're not. And there was some idea of maybe bribery, these kinds of things. Mm. So did they intentionally screw up the fingerprints or was it a real accident? I mean, you. I just think that I, I don't know what all is involved with like protecting evidence, but I would just think that if I had a package from a potential murderer here, I'd be extra careful. Like you'd have extra to like careful. go out of your way to mess it up because I'd be so careful. Yeah. But that's me. Well, well, and I think most people thought it should be like that. That's right. how it should have been. The same day the package was received by the examiner, a handbag and a black suede shoe were reported to have been seen on top of a garbage can in an alley a short distance from the crime scene. The items were recovered by police and identified by Robert Manley as being Elizabeth's. Unfortunately, they had also been wiped clean with gasoline, destroying any fingerprints. Now, here's something interesting. I didn't know you could use gasoline to, like, clean stuff. Me either. I mean, just alcohol, maybe, or or other bleach, but I just didn't know gasoline. That's interesting. Well, I think we talked about in the Peterson case, too, about, remember, there was that... There was gasoline-soaked cloth, the boat cover. Yes. Uh, In that case, I kind of took it as... Because it kept the dogs from the scent dogs from coming in and yeah. examining that room, like it was used to throw off the the cadaver dogs. Well, maybe it's twofold. Yeah, throws off the scent and removes. It is very biological material, like fingerprints. Smelly. It is. It is very smelly. <laughs> that is for sure. Yeah. Now, police began going through Elizabeth's belongings that were sent to them in this package, and they were interested in the meaning behind Mark Hansen's address book. You remember me listing that as one yes. of the items, right? Mm-hmm. And they thought that was unusual. And it's a lead. It's an actual name they can follow up on. So Hanson and Elizabeth were acquaintances. And they had kind of like a friend of a friend type relationship. And Elizabeth had occasionally stayed with friends at his house from time to time. As a matter of fact, he owned that house she had been staying at right before her death. You know, the one where she and like eight women shared a room. Okay. One of Elizabeth's roommate, Anne Toth, did say that Hanson had a thing for Elizabeth, but that Elizabeth had rejected him, which might have given him motive to kill her. 
but Hansen was quickly cleared by the police. While the address book did have his name on it, Elizabeth was using it as her own and it did not appear to have ever been used by Hansen. Now, something just doesn't sit well with me on this one because I never read any clear answer as to why he was removed as a suspect, which I think is a little bit odd. Not saying he did it, but I don't know. And again, the police don't have to be an open book about everything. But again, a police department under investigation, I would just think they would be a little bit more forthcoming with details. So I don't know. He was removed really quickly. I'm not exactly sure why. Um, you would like more. I would. Regarding that. I I would. Um, especially with this idea that, you know, the police have been paid off. And Hanson was a successful businessman. So he theoretically could have paid them off. Okay. Uh, my thing is, um, I mean, if you're going to kill somebody because they won't go out with you or something like that. I mean, that's extreme, but to, you're going to kill somebody and then cut them up and drain their blood. And like, to me, that doesn't seem like a moment of passion type of killing. To me, that seems like a, I'm a sicko who, like a serial killer kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, you're probably is, right. And again, I'm probably barking up the wrong tree. But you I just wish more. I wish I could have had more information for myself and also share. Valid. With you. Yeah. Valid. Yeah. Now, on January 26, another letter was received by the examiner. This time it was handwritten. It read, quote, here it is. Turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m., had my fun at police, Black Dahlia Avenger, end quote. Hmm, okay. The letter also named a location at which the supposed killer would turn himself in. Police waited at the location on the morning of January 29th, but the alleged killer never appeared. Instead, at 1 p.m., the examiner offices received another cut-and-pasted letter that read, quote, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. End quote. Now, okay. the validity of these two letters is in question as to whether they were genuine. Some believe it was from the killer and some don't. The original letter and package were believed to be genuine but these you know the handwriting the lack of the gasoline mm -hmm. it just didn't seem to fit completely mm -hmm. some people think it still was him but what do you think i i don't believe anything in this case okay. for the most part <laughs> i mean i do think it would be very difficult for someone to fabricate sending her items sure right? i mean sure, so sure, i sure. think i do think that's genuine i don't know I, I really don't know on these. Okay. I'm, I'm a little, I, I could see it going either way. Okay. With leads quickly growing cold, detectives began to put together a profile of the killer to generate new leads. And it was assumed the way the body was severed that whoever had killed Elizabeth must have at least had some medical knowledge. Yeah. Sounds like it to yeah. me. And, but think about it even bigger than that. It was more than likely a surgeon, but it could have also been a butcher. Yeah. Or a hunter. Yes. Someone yeah. that was used to anatomy and not to be blunt, but just someone who was not offended by gore. Sure. Right. You, someone who yeah. was used to working in a body cavity of some kind. Right. To me, this doesn't seem like a jilted lover type of Th this That's totally fair. And there was also a sexualized component 
to the killing. Oh, yes. Again, there was no proof that she was raped, but the way the body was displayed and, you know, the chunks missing from her breast, it just, you know, it was pretty provocative the way she was found. And detectives theorized the killer could have committed sex crimes Mm -hmm. in addition to killings. It seems it to me. This seems like a very sexually charged crime. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. In 1949, two years later, the name George Hodel would come across investigators' desks. Now, Hodel was on trial for a widely publicized case in which Hodel's teenage daughter, Tamar, accused him of an incestuous sexual abuse and impregnating her, Mm. which is awful. Since the LAPD were on the lookout for sexual criminals, they decided to investigate. While Hodel was surprisingly acquitted of these charges, even after two adult witnesses testified on Tamar's behalf. Well, and there should also be, like, evidence you can prove who a child's father is. Well, I don't know that they had... DNA test back oh, in 1949. Probably not. Okay. You know, I don't know. Where was Maury when we needed him? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but Hodel's behavior and yeah. lifestyle raised many eyebrows. Mm-hmm. Like, what? what's up with this guy? I've read about this guy before. To me, out of yeah. everything I've ever read, this guy seems like a good, like he could be good for it. He checks a lot of the boxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was very intelligent and he graduated high school at the age of 15. He attended college, but had to withdraw after a year because he impregnated a professor's wife. Wow. And he asked her to leave her husband for him. So he has some boundary issues. Boundaries issues. Maybe some morality issues. Uh Uh-huh. Now, she said, no, that's not. (laughs) I'm sorry. I can't leave you, 16-year-old. How will you provide for me? (laughs) And she cut off ties with him. But clearly, he had to sever relationship with the school. Sure. By the time he was 21... He had taken on a common-law wife, and they had a son. Then he legally married another woman, and they had a daughter, Tamar, who was the daughter that would go on to accuse him of of incest Mm -hmm. and uh, assault. Now, Hojul graduated from Berkeley pre-med in June 1932. Oh, pre-med. Yeah, again, I mean, smart Uh guy and also medical knowledge. Mm -hmm. Afterward, he immediately enrolled in medical school at the University of California, San Francisco, and received his medical degree in June 1936. But as the years in education added up, so did the women and children. And by the 1940s, Hodel was essentially living a polygamous lifestyle. He was extremely interested in sex, sadomasochism, partying, drinking, and womanizing. In his lifetime, he would have five wives and nine children. He also took on many temporary lovers, and it's theorized that Elizabeth may have been one of these women. Mm, Okay. That could have been how they knew each other. At the incest trial, his daughter Tamar even accused Hodel of being the Black Dahlia murderer. Okay. Which is a big Mm -hmm. deal. Sure. This skyrocketed Hodel to the top of the chart in lead suspects. And as it turned out, he was already under suspicion of killing his secretary who had died from a bizarre drug overdose. Okay. So (laughs) this guy's got some skeletons in his closet, if you will. Right. I hope that's not too crass to say, but this guy's hiding something and capable of dark things. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Sexually (laughs) abused. Yes. Dead women seem to be following him. Yeah, exactly. So the decision was made to bug his house. 
not wiretap the phones, but like actually put microphones in the wall of his house. Okay. Because again, he's very intelligent. And they said, this is the way we can get it because he's going to know we're wiretapping his phone. Sure. That's obvious. So they came up with a ruse to get him out of the house and they implanted microphones in different rooms and then ran a hard wire. Because again, this is 1940s. They ran a hard wire all the way to police headquarters where 18 detectives monitored the house 24 hours a day for six weeks. Wild. So the police thought he definitely had the possibility was definitely there was the possibility of him being the murderer well and again he's being investigated for several for several okay so this may have been just in for they knew he was just up to no good and they're like let's just see what we can find out okay exactly the detectives caught him saying quote suppose and i did kill the black dahlia they can't prove it now they can't talk to my secretary anymore because she is dead they thought there was something fishy Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Kill her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. End quote. I would be curious to know who died first, the Black Dahlia or the secretary? The Black Dahlia. Okay. So if he had some involvement with the Dahlia and the secretary knew it and then the secretary ends up dying... Yeah, because remember, he didn't even become a suspect until two years after her murder. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, don't know. He seems to really check a lot of boxes for me. and it, He just creeps me out. He does creep me out. Now, again, I've heard a little bit about him. I think I've seen some interviews with his daughter. Tell me, is this accurate or is this something that's been blown out of proportion? Was there a room in his house that... Could have potentially been like a kill room. Okay. So this is like the Hollywood lore of it all as well. So he was very successful, right? Mm -hmm. He made a lot of money. And you're familiar with the architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm -hmm. Well, his son, Lloyd Wright, went on to design some homes. And Hodel lived in one of these homes. It's since been like it's gone on to become like a historical landmark. Okay. This home. So it's wildly lavish and these interesting designs and things. And his son, Steve Hodel, who you might be referencing, has written several books in support of his father being the killer. He thinks that he was the killer. And he does reference a room in the house that they were never allowed to go in. Okay. Now, we don't know what was in that room. Okay. And again, with his father being very into sex and sadomasochism, who knows, maybe that could have just been... A room that he possibly used with consensual partners. Um, or it could have been some terrible lab where he <laughs> bisected Elizabeth Short. Okay. But we don't know. We don't know. We do know that his son has reported there was a room that no one was allowed to go in except his father. It was a locked room. But we don't know what was in that room. Okay. So, it could have been where they hid the Christmas presents, you know? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> I had to... <laughs> I just stopped my little boy from going in my closet yesterday. No. <laughs> yeah, that absolutely. Yeah, I okay. just I just haphazardly covered mine with a blanket. And I'm oh. like, well, if you peek, I'm sending it all back. <laughs> okay. I, I thought there was something about a room, but that was probably blown a little out of proportion, this kill room. It could have been anything. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like everything in this could case, have blown been out of proportion. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, shortly after, Hodel realized his name was being linked to the death of Elizabeth Short. Mm. So word still got to him, Mm -hmm. even after the house was bugged. He relocated to Hawaii before finally moving to the Philippines. Okay, that's suspicious. Suspicious. He did not return to the United States until 1990. Wow. Where he remained until his death until 1999. Upon his death, George Hodel's son, Steve Hodel, who we just mentioned, began his own investigation into his father's involvement in the Black Dahlia murders. And he has, as I mentioned, written several books stating that he believes his father was the Black Dahlia killer. And not only the Black Dahlia killer, but also the killer of several other women in Hollywood Mm. in the 1940s. He blames police corruption and mismanagement of the case for his father not being formally charged. A large part of Steve's belief in his father's guilt are two pictures he found in his father's belongings that he believes are Elizabeth. Oh. So he was really into art as well. Uh, George Hodel. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. He was so weird. <laughs> but, and so he was really into these, you know, photographs of beautiful women. And so there are these two photos that Steve Hodel found amongst his father's belongings that he believes are Elizabeth. And he kind of hung his hat on these two pictures being Elizabeth, which was confirmation that his father knew Elizabeth. And again, she could have been one of these casual lovers that he had. Sure. But unfortunately, analysis of these photos has come back as inconclusive at best. Mm. And as a matter of fact, in recent years, a woman has come forward claiming to be the woman in one of the photos, meaning that it couldn't be Elizabeth. Okay. So not saying that they couldn't have known each other, but there's no clear correlation that they did okay but does did george hodel have the ability to be the black dahlia killer yeah i think so sounds like it yeah so bad guy no matter what bad guy no matter what and again i'm not saying he's innocent but i believe a lot of the evidence that's pointing towards him because he's kind of the prime suspect even now Mm -hmm. i do believe a lot what of what's pointing to him is circumstantial Mm. evidence Mm -hmm. Again, not saying he's innocent. I just haven't seen a smoking gun yet, in my opinion. Right. You, not beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. Okay. Fair. Now, moving on to other suspects. In 1994, an author named John Gilmore released his book, Severed, The True Story of the Black Dahlia Murder. It was the first comprehensive book about the Black Dahlia Murder. And when it was released, it was treated as a true crime factual book. In it, he fingers a petty criminal named Jack Anderson Wilson, whose rap sheet lists burglary, theft, and violence as his mainstay code of offenses. Now, despite continuing decades of similar activities intermingled with prison time, Wilson restricted his bad deeds to these petty crimes and never graduated to anything else. And it made some people start to wonder, like, how could this guy be the real killer? This is a pretty intense crime. Seems like Like, a stretch, right? So more attention was given to the book. And it turns out most of the book is completely fictionalized. What? Yeah. Even pieces about Elizabeth herself, which I feel is such a disservice to Elizabeth. And this is one of the books I started reading. And that turns out with more research, it's not even accurate. Oh, no. As a matter of fact, Gilmore wrote extensively about Elizabeth being stricken with a genetic condition called infantile genitalia. I've heard this. Okay. He's the one that just made it up. 
Ultimately, what it means is that her sex organs, both internal and external, never fully developed, and she was incapable of having intercourse. Yes, I've heard that about her. Okay, flat out lie. Wow. And detectives talked to at least three men who had intercourse with her, and her autopsy report stated that her genitalia was completely normal. Now, I feel like if you're going to get something like that wrong, you could easily get everything else wrong. So to me, while this guy has definitely been on the radar, I just don't think he's the guy. And he, uh, the author of this book, just like, let me just make up this, this I guess. fact and put it under the true story of, wow. Yeah, I think he really does think it's the killer and he mm-hmm. has his own reasons for it. But, but you can't take anything he says as factual because. At this point, no. Yeah, no. At this point, no. Oh, no. Now, another suspect that I find particularly intriguing is Leslie Dillon. Now, Dillon was a 27-year-old bellhop, aspiring writer, and former mortician's assistant. Oh, okay. Who became a suspect when he began writing to the Los Angeles Police Department, specifically the psychiatrist, Dr. J. Paul DeRiver, in October of 1948. Dylan was living in Florida at the time of his correspondence with DeRiver, but had formerly lived in Los Angeles. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. He read a story about the Black Dahlia case in a true detective style magazine in which DeRiver was quoted. And he wrote to DeRiver regarding his theories on the case. So just out of the blue, he just started writing to this psychiatrist at the detective station. Okay. All right. Okay. In his correspondence, he mentioned an intense interest in sadism Hmm. and sexual violence. Ding, ding, ding. These are weird things to write. These are weird things to write. Like, if you think you have information that might help with the case, I can understand giving your input. But we're It's a strange interaction, right? That's very strange, yeah. Yeah. And he... He expressed his interest in authoring his own book on the subject of sadism and sexual violence. Okay. Dylan offered up one of his friends, Jeff Connors, as a likely suspect in the case. Oh, okay. That's also interesting. interesting. Now, over the course of their correspondence, DeRiver began to believe that Connors did not exist and that Dylan had to have committed the murder himself. So instead of turning himself this in... This is like a movie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, he has this, like, this uh, imaginary friend sure. that committed the crime. He yeah, did not commit the crime. Ego. His alter ego committed the crime, right? And Now, and I get how DeRiver's like, okay, this is... We should look into this, this right? This is fishy. This is fishy. In December 1948, Dylan agreed to meet DeRiver and was given the choice of one of three cities. Los Angeles... Phoenix, Arizona, or Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, Dylan expressed reservations about Los Angeles, ding, 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 (laughs) and chose Las Vegas instead. Now, DeRiver and undercover LAPD officers met Dylan in Las Vegas for a couple of days and then proceeded to drive back to California altogether, like the caravan back to California. Once there, Dylan and DeRiver traveled to San Francisco to unsuccessfully look for Connors. Remember his friend that he was turning in, right? Because he's like, why don't we go together and see if we can find Connors? Okay. When Dylan offered up additional intimate details about the crime, he was taken into custody by the undercover officers and transported to Los Angeles, 
where he was held against his will and without authority in order to force a confession. Oh, okay. This is where it takes a turn. Somehow, when he was stuck in this hotel room, Dylan dropped a postcard out the hotel window with a plea for help on it, and it was discovered by a passerby who turned it into local authorities, who then freed Dylan. Now, this is a whole, this is, this looks bad for the police department. Yeah, this isn't how we get what we want, no, people. absolutely not. The police soon discovered also that Connors actually did exist. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. His real name was Artie Lane, and Lane had lived in Los Angeles at the time of the murder and was employed by Columbia Studios. And which Lane had lived in Los Angeles at the time of the murders and was employed by Columbia Studios as a maintenance man. But there was no evidence at all that he had any involvement in Elizabeth's killing. So that's weird that his friend is just like, hey, look at this guy. Yeah, exactly. And he was a guy that did exist, uh-huh. but he was not in any way. And was the, the alias his or is that just what his friend called him? Like the. Yeah, I don't think he ever went by the name Connors. Okay. His name was Artie Lane. He had always been Artie Lane. Okay. His friend just kind of gave friend him came, a better. gave him an alias. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Now, also, more check marks for me. Police could never account for Dylan's whereabouts between January 9th and January 15th. Oh, that missing the week. missing week. Uh-huh. Interesting. Now, Dylan later filed a $100,000 claim against the city of Los Angeles for his false imprisonment and sure. forcing a confession. But he later dropped the lawsuit after it emerged that he was wanted by Santa Monica police for robbery. <laughs> the plot thickens. So another good dude. Here. Another good dude. The Los Angeles Times disputes his drop of the claim, saying that Dylan did, in fact, receive a financial settlement from the city of Los Angeles. So I don't really know what is true. Okay. Whatever it is, it's just bad. It's a bad look for the police department. Mm-hmm. And the incident led to a 1949 grand jury investigation of the police candling of the entire Black Dahlia case and also some other unsolved murders. Now, Dylan returned back home to Oklahoma, and he was never extradited again. And I don't know whether this proves he was innocent or simply the police department was so humiliated that yeah, they didn't want to try it again. That's my thought. I mean, I see how unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, unfortunate doesn't even begin to really describe how terrible that would be if this guy really was the killer and they just bumbled it so much that they couldn't even address it again. Wow. Yeah. In the same year, the LAPD police chief and assistant chief both resigned under the threat of a grand jury investigation relating to the Brenda Allen scandal in which the police department provided protection for a madam because she was having an affair with one of the LAPD's administrative vice squad. So it's not above them. It's definitely not above them to play dirty when in their what they feel is their best interest during this time for sure. And with that, the formal investigation into the Black Dahlia case came to a close. Most recent investigation has been done by private citizens seeking justice because justice was clearly not served here. Sure. The LAPD has refused to look into it further. And they actually consider the case closed. Wow. Just it's unsolved. a closed case. It's an unsolved, unsolved closed, closed case. Yeah. I didn't Many, know you could close unsolved cases. Uh, they have. Wow. Which is weird to me. Many of the documents still remain confidential. 
Hmm, Again, closed case. And I mean, Elizabeth would be in her 90s right now. Mm -hmm. And most of the eyewitnesses and um, suspects have deceased at this point. So, Which makes it more suspicious. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that makes it look. Like it could be even more like involvement or cover up or bumbling or, or bumbling. I think that's more it. I think people are going to look at the notes and say, what did you do here? Right. What were you mm-hmm. doing? Or maybe there was some bribery involved. You know, we're talking about Hollywood with some pretty, um, you know, some of the suspects at least mm-hmm. were very wealthy and influential. Mm-hmm. So it's it's possible. That's really sad. I mean, how do you feel about the suspects? Any of them sticking out to you? To me, Hodel is just kind of... Now, that maybe I might be biased because he, out of all of the suspects you mentioned, he's the one that I knew something about ahead of time. So that could be, you know, where I'm coming from. But he just seemed like such a monster. And the fact that he was caught talking about potentially killing her and then the fact that both of his children or two of his children think he could have been responsible. I just think, well, that's a lot of smoke with no fire. Yeah. I I will say Steve Hodel, George Hodel's son is, I mean, he's really compelling. Mm -hmm. I even, I've listened to several interviews. Um, One, he was like on Dr. Phil. I mean, he is over the top adamant that his father was the killer. I find though that he's so on a mission to prove that his father was the killer that I feel like he can't see the forest through the trees sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I mean, he came from a this is an incredibly dysfunctional family. Yeah. There was all kinds of sexual abuse kind of running through the family. The the good thing that I did find out, you know, because Stuart Total was a terrible person sure. and there was some I do believe that he molested his daughter. Oh, yes. Um, And so this daughter would have been the sibling to Steve, Mm -hmm. who now is pushing, you know, for this idea that his father is the killer. Um, And there was abuse in their whole generation. But I have seen interviews with Tamar's children. um, Well, her daughters. So I guess it would have been her daughters, Tamar's daughters, daughters. Okay. So even another generation down. Mm-hmm. Tamar definitely struggled a lot, mm. you know, the rest of her life. Sure. Never getting justice and having been abused. But her daughter and her daughter's daughters, so her grandchildren, mm-hmm. they really are turning it around. Oh. Um, they actually have a little podcast that oh. they do as well, which is kind of neat. That's exciting. Yeah. And they do talk a lot about their family history because it's so bizarre i mean it sounds i mean to think that your grandfather killed the black dahlia i mean it's yeah it's intense it it is intense um but really it was inspiring listening to them talk because they're really trying to kind of turn around their family tree and you know give a more positive a more positive spin oh that's amazing yeah that's good yeah well stephanie thank you so much i learned so much about the black dahlia and Probably like a lot of our listeners, I went into it kind of thinking I knew everything there was to know. And it's interesting how much of what I've heard is inaccurate. And I do think, I think we said it in the beginning, that she's almost like she's not a real person because she's this character. Yeah. And so it's really nice that you made her feel very much like the human that she was. Yeah. And that she deserved to be remembered as. It's really sad that, you know. 
yeah, the the rumors and everything just kind of obscured who she was as a person. Like we never hear about that. We never hear about what she truly wanted out of life or who she truly was. It's yeah. all these things that probably aren't true. So, yeah. Well, I think we need to talk about something a little bit positive. I need a little bit of a, a lift here at the end. Uh, Why don't you tell me something good? Okay. Well, how about I tell you about our branch of hope? Oh, I like that. Okay. <laughs> Your December 2023 nonprofit options are Superstition Search and Rescue, which we talked about in episode 23, the Lacey and Connor Peterson episode, and the Amelia Earhart Memorial Scholarship Fund provided through the 99s, which we covered in episode 24 when we talked about the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. To vote, head to our Facebook page to let us know through our online poll which fund speaks to you. There are no strings attached, no gimmicks. We are simply a podcast leading through words and actions, and we want to make sure your voice is heard. If you love this episode, love us or love the Branch of Hope, tell somebody. We are doing good work and we need you to help spread the good word. You can also join our Patreon, which will allow us to keep creating and connecting with you. Please send us an email at thedarkoakpodcast at gmail.com. We are open to your questions, comments, and anything else you want to share. For other ways to connect, hop over to thedarkoak.com. Be sure to follow us to our next episode where we cover the mysterious survival story of Casey Hathaway. Thanks for listening, Shiver Seekers. You rock. This episode of The Dark Oak was created, researched, written, recorded, hosted, edited, published, and marketed by Cynthia and Stephanie of Just Us Gals Productions and made possible by you, our shiver-seeking listener. Special thanks goes to Justice Himes for our incredible artwork and Ryan Creep for our amazing music.